support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Joseph, how are you, Brian? How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Happy 4th of July. Is it? With the 5th today, You've missed it by a day, Brian. You know what? Time really breaks down. You know, days go by so fast. There's so much to do. It's the, it's the coronavirus lockdown as well. I tend to forget which day it is. Well, listen, it's great to have you both on. Synthetic biology is something that's new to me. I've been learning about recently. Uh, but Brian, you and I, have, we've known each other for well over a year now. Um, I've interviewed you, I think, twice to do with Bitcoin now. And Joseph, the first time I'm going to have met you, and I've heard you're a bit of a Bitcoiner as well. So (laughs) there's a lot of interesting things to cover here. I've covered like the end of humanity stuff that can go on with synthetic biology. But I know there's a lot of good stuff as well. But I'm going to start with you, Brian, and then go to you, Joseph. But Brian, this this is going to go on my other show, Defiance. So some people might not know you. So can you just introduce yourself and uh, what it is you do? Real, real quick, Peter, um, before we go out, um, the opinions I express here about biology are, are mine alone and not, not those of my employer. So my name is Brian Bishop. I'm currently CTO at Avanti, which is a Wyoming company applying for a state bank charter that would be able to handle both digital assets as well as U.S. dollars. I'm known in the Bitcoin space as a Bitcoin core contributor, uh, sometimes known for my my impressive recollection of research or sometimes transcripts. I do transcripts of various conferences not so much anymore. That's actually passed on to uh, Michael Folkson, who's been doing a great job. And uh, yeah, I mean, in this context, um, I also have a bit of an inexplicable background in biology. All right. Okay. Well, that was new to me. So I'm, I'm glad, to, glad to, although not surprising, having got to know you a little bit over this last year or so. Uh, Joseph, just tell us a bit, bit about you and your background. All right. So for the last almost 15 years, I've been involved in this space of biohacking, open source biology, open science. I'm a biotech entrepreneur, came late to Bitcoin, although uh, Brian and I were both on the mailing list with Satoshi uh, at the Peer-to-Peer Foundation uh, mailing list when he announced Bitcoin, and we kind of laughed it off and didn't take it seriously. To my extreme regret, of course, uh, Brian saw no. the saw the light. Uh, yeah, he he got with it earlier than I did, and I finally came back around in 2017. Of course, when the price was shooting up, um, so I'm actually kind of a philosopher, I guess, initially, and uh, then I uh, had been really focused on life sciences, uh, primarily because of an experience as an undergrad when I started using Napster for the first time and doing this file sharing and being able to get any MP3. Uh, I'm a bit of a musician. I play piano as a hobby. So I'd always been aware of the trends of technology and what it was doing to music. And I had this epiphany, which got me started thinking about the future of economics when everything is digitized and suddenly a creator can produce content for a $1,000 investment in a $1,000 laptop gets you the equivalent of a million dollar recording studio. So I started looking into the whole business model disruption that was about to happen and entertainment. And I learned at the same time while I was in college that biology was becoming digital. Uh, We were just approaching the Human Genome Project's first 
completion of the first human genome. It was a $3 billion uh, government project, and it took several decades. It started in the 80s. Uh, but at the time, people were forecasting we were going to be at $1,000 to complete one genome in only a few decades more. And of course, that actually came to pass in about 2015 was officially when we crossed that milestone. So there was a very clear parallel to what happened in computers, personal computing, Moore's law in semiconductors. And actually, biology was going faster than Moore's law. The price of reading DNA was getting cheaper, even faster than the price of uh, getting a, a chip with more uh, you know, transistors crammed on it. Uh, so that's when I kind of became obsessed with the idea that biology would be the next information technology industry. And the implications were just huge because it impacts on all of medicine, agriculture, food. Um, so for me, that's when I kind of became obsessed with this thing of figuring out how do we change the business model, make it cheaper, more inclusive, let more people participate in engineering biology. Joseph, question. Where were you in 2009 when Bitcoin was launched? What were you doing? Yeah, so I had just, it was moving out to Silicon Valley, actually, at the time. And I even uh, had moved in with the roommates and they were starting a lab in our garage. Uh, one of my, my roommate at the time was finishing his PhD. He got disgruntled, got into sort of a spat uh, with the people who were funding his research. So he kind of took his equipment and went home, so to speak, and set up this uh, lab in our house and started drawing blood from us, our, our friend group, and he was looking to see if we had cancer-fighting activity to see if there's a way to harness the innate immune system against cancer cells. So he actually raised some angel money at that time, and it sort of got this, this was right around the time that this um, biohacking started to really take off. Uh, we launched what would become one of the first ever labs in the world. There was a community lab called BioCurious, and we did this in Silicon Valley. We actually did a little crowdfunding campaign and opened up a space. It was quite controversial, quite difficult to get traction on this. People didn't understand what we we're doing, but it's kind of like a co-working model coupled with a membership and classes model. So this is a way that uh, non-biologists, non-experts could come in, sign up and take a, a two-day course and learn the basics of cloning a, a gene, doing PCR, and really, again, making the analogy to what happened in personal computing where the skills became you know, more accessible and can we broaden the, the base of, of people that can participate in this technology. Wow. Okay. Well, listen, look, this uh, synthetic biology stuff does scare the shit out of me. It's obviously like, there's some really interesting things that can be done with it. And we're also in a very, very strange time right now. We're, we're seeing uh, financial markets collapse yet. People like Brian have helped deliver a new form of decentralized money, which hopefully hopefully can give a, a more better and honest form of money to us. We, we're at a time where Elon Musk is trying to get us to Mars and, and, and talking about neural links, and uh, which makes me think so that we'll end up in a place where we won't need our mouths because we'll be talking via our brains. We also have this synthetic biology stuff, which I talked to Rob Reed about, which he said could you know, cure diseases, cure hunger, and also lead to the end of humanity. So like, it's a, it's a broad opening question for you joseph but like what is the current status of the the world of synthetic biology where, where are we yeah this is again it's uh, 
people always try to make these analogies to different industries saying, are we in 1994 uh, version of the internet where it's just about to take off? Um, again, you've got to be very wary of this. We've been through so many hype cycles in technology and you got to realize the incentives are always there for everyone to hype this up as the next deliverance uh, for our, you know, our savior moment, right? And that's because you only get paid and invited to do speaking gigs and all that if you're preaching that we're on the cusp of the next big thing. Um, you've got to be patient with this and be in it for the long run. So I would say in the medium to long run, it's absolutely um, sky's the limit. I mean, literally going to Mars, all this is going to be dependent on synthetic biology. You see a lot of this happening, you know, the convergence of that, um, but in the short run, you've just got to realize it still takes a decade to get each milestone. We're, we're on track, but just be wary of people overhyping um, the, the state of what can actually be done today and what is economically viable today. Because you can do things at proof of principle and that it still takes another 15 years to get to market traction. So I'd say we are, you know, now more than ever, it's going to be interesting to see COVID potentially accelerate some of this. We've really been stuck in a lot of ways by certain bottlenecks in the marketplace, more so than the technology being the, the barrier. Um, but yeah, incredibly bright future of synthetic biology, but we have to keep kind of including more voices and perspectives in this. You get in an echo chamber like anything else. You look at, I spent three years in Silicon Valley before I moved back uh, down to uh, San Diego. And there's just so much hype always in Silicon Valley. And you got to be wary of that happening in synthetic biology. Everything is a bit of a click, you know, where the different groups know each other. And that's been my big perspective on this for 15 years is we get better outcomes when we move to this open source, open science model. And the last 40 years of science, uh, we've started to have kind of a crisis and a breakdown in the way science is done. Academia has been more and more dysfunctional. The PhD and grad students are basically indentured servants, and then there's no positions for them when they finish their degree because only a few professors are going to get a tenured position and have a faculty chair. And, uh, and so there's been this sort of crisis of how do we harness all this talent and innovation when the barrier to entry has meant that only a few people can get their own professorship or start their own company. So that's what we've been focused on in the biohacking is bringing these costs down and hopefully having a wave of entrepreneurs and people able to start their own company that's going to address a broader set of problems. And again, about the idea of local innovation, this is not just a you know a first world thing. This is very critical for developing countries in lower resource settings. Um, biology is a, a astounding, it's an astounding technological base. Uh, so the vision is it's going to replace much of the industrial base from the 20th century, which is chemicals uh, based. We're going to change to biological manufacturing. It's better for the environment, um, better for the supply chain. So there's so much promise. But again, like just be wary of the hype. Uh, we went through a period in the 1990s about nanotechnology, thinking that we were just around the corner from self-replicating machines. And we're still decades away from that. I would say the same thing for brain machine interfaces. We've had some versions of cochlear implants for 20 years, but we're not probably right around the corner from uh, you know, having this telepathic uh, <laughs> interface. It may be 50 years off. So it's, it's hard to 
you can see these trends that the timing is incredibly difficult to pin down with uh, precision. Yeah, I can't even get my head around it. It's like, even if we were having this conversation as a biolink conversation, would we even have it? Or would our brains just figure out the conversation we would have had and just sent a file out to everyone to listen to? Here's the file. This is what we would have covered. Brian, just switching over to you for a second. Um, obviously, you're a software developer, programmer, probably one of the better ones out there. And you obviously had an interest in, in the field of programmable money. And now I guess we're in the stage of programmable biology. Is, is that what's interested you absolutely yeah i mean when you get down to it and you you look at it and you squint just enough dna is kind of like software it's kind of like programming but it's also kind of not it's really interesting you know just just going back a second to when uh, you're saying you are terrified of synthetic biology well terrified you should be horrified of uh, uh normal biology then there are all sorts of things going on in your body and biology that that we either don't understand or don't want and it's for the most part outside of our control completely. And it's through synthetic biology that we're being able to explore methods of controlling that. So I see synthetic biology as a positive in the light of like this, the status quo of just absolute horror of biology. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean the state of biology, you know, when I talk about, you know, programming, you know, in software, you can kind of say, here's what I want. I'm going to go build it. It's kind of like putting Legos together a little bit. In biology, that's not really the case. The best analogy is really more like reverse engineering. Reverse engineering is when someone gets some compiled software object and they look at it, they look at the bits and bytes, and they try to figure out what does the software do. That's exactly what biology is. And for the most part, what we can do best in synthetic biology is using components that we already understand to try to do something new. But this capacity is somewhat limited, and there's only certain certain ways that we can move forward. Sometimes this is like rational protein engineering where we can create new proteins. Sometimes it's uh, just repurposing existing proteins. Some things are easy. Some things are difficult. As an example, I mean, you know, when we talk about like reverse engineering a computer, you plug in some electronics, you know, JTAG, you do a dump of the ROM, you start exploring. Well, doing the equivalent of like a JTAG dump of a, of a chip, of a, the contents of the chip or something, for biology is tens of thousands, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it is dropping. I mean, you know, a few decades ago, that would have been millions and millions of dollars. But the point is, is that our tools for manipulating biology at this level and doing programmable biology are still quite expensive. They are dropping and certain things are passing into the, the region where it's economically viable for someone who has like, I don't know, an expensive hobby. As an example, a lot of people have uh, cars as a hobby. You know, they'll easily spend tens of thousands of dollars a year on cars, for example. And biology is starting to get to that region where, you know, it's just a somewhat more expensive hobby. And you suddenly have this direct access to programmable biology that you didn't have before. It's the unknown consequences that scare the crap out of me. It's the stuff that we put out there that we, we don't know what will happen with it. It's the kind of, I always look at the um, like biology as a, I don't know. It's kind of like we've, we've taken billions of years to evolve to this point and we're kind of playing around with something we don't understand. And perhaps that's just, yeah, perhaps I shouldn't be worried about that. But even today, right. I got, um, I got a news alert earlier today. Do you, I don't know if you guys know who MI6 is, but the boss of MI6 came out and said, the theory that coronavirus came from a Wuhan lab must not be dismissed as conspiracy. Now, I've kind of avoided the Wuhan lab thing because I've never actually seen a, any of the biologists or virus experts actually come out and say it. It tends to be more 
uh, wider conversations I've seen in different podcasts. Uh, there's a guy, I can't remember his first name, something Bedford. Um, he did a study and he didn't think it uh, was from a lab, but it seems to be like this growing theory. And even if it isn't, the truth is it could have. There is an ability to play around with viruses to make them more uh, contagious. So it kind of, that's the stuff that really worries me that, that we end up unleashing something into the world that, that has unknown consequences. Just, just back to you a second, Joseph, you've obviously, it's for probably a very strange time at the moment for you with coronavirus out there, because the, the field that you're involved in is, it's kind of got the attention of the wider public. Where, where are you on the whole lab virus theory conspiracy? Yeah. I mean, so there's a few different things to can keep in mind as we think about this, it's not necessary to, you know, to suppose that it came from the lab. If it can be explained through um, arising in the wild and crossing over to humans through animals in the marketplace, um, we're going to have more of these pandemics. Okay. This is all like statistics. It's a matter of you're rolling the dice we haven't really been addressing most of the fundamental things that make us more secure and safe from this threat. And that involves fixing the factory farming and industrial uh, agriculture practices that are basically breeding these things by caging animals so close together. And that's where this whole future of food enabled through synthetic biology and lab grown meat, that is going to be much more humane. We're going to be able to uh, you know stop these basically horrific practices of of raising and sacrificing millions of animals i'm not vegan but i have one good friend who's a vegan biotech guy and he's been really heavily involved for the last 10 years in investing in a bunch of these alternative food you know, protein sources and really fixing the food chain for you know protein it's even not just what we're eating but what our animals are eating so you know we're feeding other animals to other animals, and that also increases the the risk of these zoonotic, uh, you know, viral transfers. Um, then, you know, next, I, I always like to say, you know, ultimately we, we're going to have to engineer humans to be more robust against these kinds of threats, and that's inevitable if we're ever going to Mars to, to do any of this. We're going to have to basically engage with our human biology to make us less uh, susceptible to these kinds of threats. George Church is, is kind of a very prolific uh, figure in the field. He's got several different plans he's released about how you could actually make humans resistant to all viruses in the future if we change our uh, DNA, essentially. Uh, but you know, if you look at this, uh, whether or not it came out of a lab, it may have. It's possible that you know what happened was that they were working with it, trying to study it, to learn how to defend us against these threats. And then someone accidentally infected themselves, went out of the lab, and it spread in the population there. But regardless of the source of it, this we have to do the same things to contain it. And we basically failed executing on any of that. And that doesn't have anything to do with synthetic biology. That just is more of the breakdown of trust in social institutions, the breakdown of culture. Uh, the U.S. is particularly a bad example of this right now, or we, we cannot even do basic things of, of masks without having a culture war over it. And this is ancient technology. It's not a tech thing at all. We're talking about wearing a, you know, a piece of cloth over your face. So a lot of this having to do with being resilient, um, you know, anti-fragile, 
all of that comes down to human organization, decentralization, having clarity of communication, communications from the authorities, getting mixed messages uh, in the beginning about everything from how it could spread to wearing a mask or not being, uh, if, if that helps or not. And so, you know, this is just textbook kind of examples of botched uh, leadership, right? So I say we focus on the things that we can do. And that's where really Bitcoin comes in, just in terms of changing the culture, bringing us back to being self-reliant, taking personal responsibility, personal accountability. And, you know, it's unfortunate we've had this since 1971, you know, there's all these you know, memes about what happened in 1971. You see, you know, going off the gold standard and then having the spread of fast food to all of these things do seem to go back in the last 40 years, which have kind of led us to being uniquely vulnerable to this particular threat that hit at this time when human beings have sort of forgotten how to do, you know, the, the basic steps needed to be resilient. Of course, we saw the in 1918 pandemic a hundred a little over a hundred years ago. And what's different now is that we have air travel within an instant uh, across the planet. So it's spread faster. But again, I mean I'm optimistic ultimately that synthetic biology and the tools of synthetic biology will they can advance fast enough to actually make us more secure against the threats that they might generate. But that is going to require us overhauling our entire public health infrastructure. There's no reason in the future that we can't have a smart vaccine that's uploaded to the cloud. You know, you push the button and then anybody can get that just like your you know, software update. But what's standing between here and there is we've got to build that infrastructure. We're like light years away from doing that. We've got technology that's like 30 years old, was discovered uh, 30 years ago, and is still not routinely used in medicine because... We never fix the economics, the kind of economy of scale. I'm talking about just about DNA testing. There's no good reason why we didn't have cheap, fast, ubiquitous tests for COVID. I actually worked on a, um, a DNA testing system 10 years ago. We were trying to do portable PCR, polymerase chain reaction. And this was my first time as an entrepreneur, so I made various mistakes. But ultimately, it came down to just the marketplace is pretty dysfunctional. And it, it, this is why you got things like Theranos, which is a well-known, uh, uh, well-covered scam company out of Silicon Valley, which went on for about 10 years. And it turned out it was all smoke and, and no substance. Um, and so this has particularly been uh, a problem in biotech because it's kind of a difficult subject matter. It's not that uh, non-outsiders and non-experts could be taken in sometimes by, by this, but um, again, it, it all has to do with, you know, fixing the supply chain and the logistics of this. We have the technology to do inexpensive testing. We have the ability to make inexpensive medicines for everyone on the planet. And we don't do that because the pharmaceutical industry business model is configured around this thing of getting a patent on a molecule. And then the marginal cost of production is like pretty much pennies for each next dose of that drug. But they've built a business model that relies on charging, you know, thousands of dollars for a drug that could be delivered for a hundred dollars. And this is not news. People have been trying to point this out since the 1980s when it, it really started that all accelerated and gotten worse. Uh, so you know something's got to give, and we have to 
reform the economics of our, our healthcare system, really. So it's, it's, it's economics and politics, which is a problem, the two of them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even you look at things like this hydroxychloroquine thing, it is insane. I, this drug has been around for decades, and you would think that it'd be a straightforward thing to say, let's just get the data, let's run trials on it, let people do it. It becomes politicized. It's shocking. And, and uh, but that has to do with the peculiar effect of Trump on the global you know, population today. He just anything that he's remotely associated with manages to overrides rational thought. And now it's about Trump or not. It's quite extraordinary. Right. But there's countless examples like that where we're just simply not. Uh, we've got the tools and things that are out there and we can't apply them. I and mean, we got so much red tape in the U.S. with our FDA, CDC. Uh, I mean, it was just been a disaster how we handled the testing rollout. Uh, it was basically actively obstructed multiple Academic groups were all coming up with their own test, and there's a good case in Seattle. Ended up like Bill Gates ended up directly funding this Seattle flu study group, and they were able to repurpose things they'd already done for monitoring flu and do it for COVID. But in the FDA was pretty much obstructing them every step of the way, and that has to do with sort of the bureaucratic nature of this system. Now everybody's about covering their ass instead of being able to take appropriate intelligent risks. Because everything is is risk in in life, uh, and again, especially with medicine, right? But our uh, risk taking really since around the 1970s is when it shifted, and it has become so difficult to do clinical studies. It costs more and more to do clinical trials, so only the biggest pharma companies can sponsor a human trial. Before that, you used to have a lot of individual scientists, physicians, doctors running their own small scale studies and they had a lot more freedom to pursue that uh, but that's become almost impossible because of litigation and other liability risks and just driving up the cost of doing research so that only a few bigger uh, companies could pursue that yeah but and the other thing though it's like um, experience i've gone through with this is knowing who to trust anymore so we had the uh, shit show with the uh, who uh, on two on two counts the first count in that they appeared complicit in the secretive kind of hush up of the virus within China. And then secondly, the kind of arguments over the face mask, which I still don't believe is like fully resolved. I mean, it seems common sense that if you wear a face mask, you will limit the spread of the virus if you're carrying it. So we've had that. So, And then we've gone to the point where the US has uh, removed their funding for the WHO and there's a lot of distrust. And I can understand that. Then and I understand the fear of centralized institutions such as that, but then it's like, well, who else do you trust? You know, am I right. meant to trust an expert online, a Bitcoiner who believes they have something? Well, well, you know, as as any other self-respecting Bitcoiner would say, uh, don't trust, verify. Huh? But how? How am I meant to? How am I meant to verify um, something well, you know, like the WHO? Like everything's become an argument. When we talk about DIY bio and biohacking, the idea is that it actually is feasible for you to get your hands on equipment to help test whether you have the virus, for example, to help test what are uh-huh. the bacteria in your community and everything. These are the kinds of tools that will put this information in your hands. So we'll get my own right. health kit node where I can verify, like I can verify the Bitcoin blockchain, I can verify viruses and verify the cures. Are you saying we're going that far? Well, yes. So there's a lot of work for over 10 years of different citizen science, we call it, where they'll go out and you can do environmental sampling. 
there's a pretty successful project in the New York City subways. Um, I believe it's Chris Mason is the professor there who's been leading that up. And, and you get the idea is once so cheap now to do DNA sequencing, you can arm uh, you know a group of hobbyists and they go out with the swab stuff and and check surfaces, collect it and send it back, and uh, then they'll sequence it and and get a a, re- a sort of a snapshot of the different genomic diversity. Uh, the the weird thing about that, they're finding stuff in the subway that they, they don't know what the heck it is. <laughs> they're trying to, they don't know where, what this DNA is, some of these uh, things that are turning up. And that's, again, remember, like we haven't even looked in our oceans yet. There's probably so much stuff undiscovered in the oceans. We are still exploring the frontiers of biology. There's so much to learn and so much that we can discover that can then be uh, economically useful, uh, new microbes, things that can do things that, you know, nature often has found a solution something. Um, so I would say, yeah, the democratization of this has been underway for 15 years. A lot of people are uncomfortable with it, but it's an incredible, especially for, I'll give you an example. I, I actually started a podcast last year and we've been interviewing a bunch of different rare disease patients. And, you know, there's over 7,000 different uh, uh, rare disease conditions in the world. And we discover another one every every year. There's more added to that list. And so the way that it works, it's this long tail uh, where no one will invest in that when it costs you know a billion dollars to develop a new treatment for something. Then how are you going to do it? Well, the patient groups themselves have begun doing this, and they've found other people that have a similar mutation because DNA sequencing is cheaper now, and the internet social networking is allowing them to find uh, maybe there's only 12 patients they you know, they found with this ultra rare mutation. And suddenly they can pool resources together with friends and family, and they've actually raised money and go out and start a drug development project for their condition, which otherwise was going to be neglected by the big pharma industry because they can't address that small market like that. Uh, So this is just the very beginning of what we're going to see. All right. So let's get into some of this good stuff because I I, I am naturally drawn to the crazy bad shit just just because it like, it scares me but there is the good stuff as well look i did um i did a, i was a vegan for a year and I've, I've been a vegetarian for different parts of my life for about 18 years uh, i'm not right now but i'm i feel like i'm the gravity of going back towards vegetarian and veganism not because i'm massively anti uh, eating meat or, or a massive animal rights activist it's more because like today when i did my shopping and i yeah, i bought my chicken for the week for me and the kids and such i know how that's farmed right i know it i know how it's farmed i i I know we have these giant warehouses where animals aren't treated particularly well Um, i know from back when i was a vegan and um, one of my friends who got me into podcasting he's a a big vegan athlete called rich roll and you know I, i was studying it a lot and i know about we pump them full of antibiotics and i know about all this bad stuff that's going on and I think if you watch it too much, it, it does scare you off it. So I, I, I do personally feel a lot of guilt towards the maltreatment of animals. And this idea, though, of, of lab-grown meat, firstly, it sounds weird, right? Let's just let's just be, deal with that. It sounds weird that you're growing meat in a lab. But at the same time, I've been told it's nothing to be scared of. So do you want to go through that and explain what's going on there? Uh, you know, essentially, the idea is you could do this under controlled circumstances. Eventually, we'll have these scaffolds, uh, which can grow, you know, slabs of meat. Um, I'll add that tissue engineering itself is is an incredibly important field that's also proceeding as we speak, enabled by 3D printing and other 
manufacturing technologies. And so that's what's going to let us eventually grow organs, organ replacements, perhaps even limbs, you know, to replace uh, people's limbs that have been uh, blown off. Uh, so, you know, we're on the verge of this revolution in material science and biomaterials, bioprinting, uh, which is part of this. Uh, and then, you know, the idea of if you can culture the meat and um, carefully add the ingredients, uh, then you're really cutting out m- most of this potential for contamination. Of course, it's cruelty-free, um, you know, for those who's, who are really focused on the ethics of uh, animal, you know, using animals, consuming them. So, yeah, and then eventually when the economics get there, now, again, the question is going to be economy of scale, and then is it decentralized or does it become a monopoly centralized thing again, in which case it, it's, you know, this has been a problem in big agriculture and there's only a few big distributors that are distributing all of our food products today. So again, it, uh, you've got to always be careful of that monopoly and, and the anti-competitive nature of this. We, we want to, you know, hopefully you know, have it to where local communities can source and control their own food security. Um, and then if we can cut down on all this international, you know, shipping everything across the planet, our supply chains are incredibly fragile, right? So that's the other thing of this reducing the carbon footprint and really transitioning to a, a different kind of post-industrial economy, where hopefully you combine the best of globalization things alongside the strengths of local production. Um, and this is, you know, the, the big picture stuff that's very you know, about the nature of capitalism and sort of what's, what is next? What, what is, what is happening to capitalism? Are we moving to sort of post-capitalist system? What does that look like? And that's a whole other you know, can of worms that we can get into. Yeah. Well, it's a win-win-win, right? It's, 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 it's meat production without the cruelty. It's, uh, if the economics are right, it's uh, hopefully can call, uh, help with hunger issues around the world. As you said, if the logistics are, are correct. We won't have to be shipping animals around the world. There's, I can see all the benefits. I get it. Look, I get it. Um, I don't know how far off we are with it. And what about the DNI side, Brian? Because this is something you've worked on. You told me you've created a patent. Tell me about the DNI side. What's interested you there? Yeah. So my, my first, um, it's actually patent pending at the moment. Uh, hopefully I get it. Okay. We'll see. Anyway, um, yeah, I mean, it's a DNA data storage based technology. The observation is that we're producing data at an alarming rate and our capacity to store data is not going to keep up with the production of data. Now, I mean, arguably, maybe we shouldn't store literally everything, but some of us just, uh, you know, have that archivist instinct, I guess. So we want to store as much as possible. So, you know, if, we, if we're projecting out the amount of data that we're creating to, like, completely surpass uh, all available uh, silicon-based data storage mechanisms we currently have available, what's next? Well, that's where DNA data storage uh, comes from is this idea that we can use DNA molecules to encode digital information on a very, very small scale. Keep in mind that um, nucleotides, one of the base building blocks of DNA, are only a few nanometers wide. So you can store a tremendous amount of information in a very small amount of DNA. And, uh, you know, there's all sorts of companies right now pursuing this, actually. There's um, everything from chemical-based methods of DNA synthesis being pursued for data storage. There's enzymatic methods, meaning using uh, proteins in new and interesting ways to try to create DNA uh, for the purposes of data storage, and, and a number of other techniques. Well, can we just go back a step, step there? Because obviously somebody's run the calculations. So is this based on the 
known limited supply of silicon yeah. on the planet. Yeah. yeah. That's right. There, there is and that's, silicon, and uh, unfortunately, you can't just take a tractor at the beach and convert that into wafers. Right. Okay. So, and this, storing data on silicon is the only real way we have at the moment at scale. At scale, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, there's always all sorts of interesting ways that people find to encode data. I mean, originally, computer memory was magnetic core core memory, you know. And uh-huh. um, anyway, people people find new and innovative ways to do it. Uh, you know, if you really dig deep into research, people talk about, well, can we store data in like the spin of electrons on atoms or, or can we like use lasers to etch microcrystals and things like that? And yeah, we probably could. But I mean, it's a question of what can you actually uh, deliver to market? You know, what, what's actually feasible and practical in a real sense? And uh, DNA is rapidly becoming one of those options. Wow. So you so you're, it's a biological storage of data. That's right. Yeah. I mean, DNA is a really amazing molecule, you know, the secret of life, right? The source code to life. Um, at yeah. room temperature, DNA has a half-life of 500 years, and that's just storing at room temperature. Now, in, in modern biology, what you actually do in the lab is you store it in a freezer, right? And, you know, when you store it in a freezer, it'll last, uh, I mean, easily hundreds of thousands of years. And then there's like cryogenic storage, you know, liquid nitrogen or even colder. You know, if we had liquid nitrogen, 80, 90 million years ago with the dinosaurs, uh, we would possibly have dinosaur DNA available today. And unfortunately, since it was not stored in that way, you know, in bones and skeletons that got fossilized, unfortunately, that DNA has broken down and is, is as far as we know, currently uh, unreadable. Well, what, I know this is going to sound like a really dumb question, but it's because I don't know this stuff. Like, how do you actually explain what DNA is? Like, how, what is it? How does it exist? What is DNA? Well, yeah, right, I, I mean, I know what it is, right? I know it's what what it helps, like uh, explain how we become who we are. It's the it's the it's the code for what we become, right? It's all our features, etc. And I don't know if it includes personality as well. I mean, maybe you'll tell me that. But like, what actually is DNA? Well, DNA is a molecule. It's based off of a skeleton where it has a backbone, and then the, attached to the backbone are something called nucleotides, which are these can be thought of as these little bricks that get put onto the DNA molecule. Uh, well, I mean, together they create the DNA molecule. Anyway, this the sequence of the type of bricks that you find as you move along a DNA molecule basically instructs molecular machines inside of every cell to create proteins, peptides, all sorts of things. And because this is where I get really interested, like how did that even come to exist? Like what what was the spark of what was the spark of evolution that made that happen? Do we even know? Is this where all that like weird soup shit was at the bottom of the ocean bubbling away? Well, well, so there are there are entire research fields dedicated to ask to answering that question, both asking and answering that question. And we know some things, we don't know other things. Given my background in programming, I'll answer from that background. Um, there was this really interesting research paper in the '90s that I really like. It was about it was about digital organisms. Actually, it was about simulations of digital organisms. And the way it worked was they said, "Okay, we're going to start with a." Um, a a field, you know, an array of, I don't know, 1,000 by 1,000 elements. And inside of each of these cells in this giant spreadsheet, you can imagine, each one can randomly have one of 16 different commands. And these 16 different commands were things like uh, add number, subtract, you know, move one forward, move one backwards, things like that. And when you randomly generate the spreadsheet of 1,000 by 1,000 
uh, units of these commands. And then you run the program starting from the very beginning and going left to right the whole way through at a frequency of one in every 1,000 of these randomly generated playing fields, self-replicating digital organisms would develop, meaning the random sequence of these commands when executed would create a something that was self-replicating, something that would copy its own source code and proliferate over the entire map. And that's just random chance there with those 16 commands. So this is a really interesting uh, study because it, it was about digital organisms and just showing, you know, how, how this could possibly arise. And I mean, it, it uh, you know, you can imagine, you know, how might this apply to biology? You know, there are certain um, biological building blocks available everywhere. And uh, perhaps with enough time and enough variety, some of them happen to bump into each other at the right moments to create this self-perpetuating DNA molecule that is so abundant today. All right. So you, and so you figured, if you actually figured out the way to encode data into DNA, store it and read it, or, is, or, or have you just, is your pattern just for the idea of doing it? No, 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 no. So my, my pattern is quite more specific. Other people came up with the idea of saying, can we store data on DNA? And there are existing methods, um, uh, such as uh, like a, a brick by brick approach, where you try to select and choose what the next nucleotide is added to the DNA molecule. And if it's this one or that one, it represents a zero or a one or some other data encoding method. Uh, mine is uh, uh, very different and a bit unique and essentially, the, w the way to summarize it is that I am using biological enzymes, like proteins from cells, uh, to uh, copy DNA in a way that I can control, to some extent, the outcome, copying at their normal rate. And so all the other, well, most of the other methods um, don't do that. They're based off of chemistry, of trying to chemically add one brick at a time and you know, use all sorts of hazardous chemicals and so on. In my method, you have a protein in a aqueous environment, as typical, and it's basically uh, running in a loop over a loop of DNA molecule, essentially for forever or as long as it can. And um, as a result, I'm able to, um, using this method, encode data at a much higher rate than, than other conventional chemistry-based methods. See, I'm trying to imagine how this this will actually work in reality. Would it be some kind of computer which also has some kind of I don't know? You have to actually have some biological materials input as well, and it's like a combination of the two. Like I'm I'm completely confused how it works. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility. You do need like some chemical or biological inputs. You know, as you know, all organisms the way they get their inputs is by eating, right? Unless they're an autotroph, yeah. in which case it's light. But in practical terms for DNA data storage, the, the most practical way that you're going to see this coming together in the next five or 10 years is really for archival cold storage in probably large facilities that are responsible for making these DNA molecules. In the next five years, it is improbable to see a plug-in USB device that's able to do this on your desktop. But, you know, eventually that might be the case, but not within the next five years. Not the next five years. All right, maybe like twenty years or something. Joseph, what are the other like really interesting areas of Symbio that we should be aware of? Yeah, so I guess how to break it down. Basically, you know, you can think about it in terms of reading DNA or writing DNA. So we've gone for twenty years, getting faster and faster and cheaper and cheaper at reading DNA. Uh, Illumina, sort of like the Microsoft 
of that space. They've kind of become a monopoly because they cornered the market and they have the most sequencers, the install base in the world, kind of most people running on Illumina's machines. That is opening up all of this new precision, personalized medicine diagnostics possibility. And the next frontier, which is emerging as we speak in the last eight years, is more gene editing, writing DNA. Well, well, first, we're talking about just being able to edit DNA through CRISPR tools like this. Eventually, you're talking about synthesizing entirely novel DNA constructs. That's probably 20, 30 years until that's economically viable at scale. Um, but you're going to hear a lot about gene therapy all the time in the news. Now, gene therapy has been around 30, 35 years. We attempted some in the late 80s. We had a death in the 90s of this Jesse Gel- Gelsinger case, which sort of froze the field for almost like 20 years because there was an adverse reaction. Uh, a lot of times, you know, you'll get an immune response, something which may go into overdrive and, and kill, kills the patient. We're seeing some tremendous progress around cancer. If you can find the precise mutation and, and you identify the person that's going to be a responder to that, and you may be able to cure it. Uh, but we don't always know which patient is going to respond. So it's kind of getting to the point where if you're if you're in a lucky where there is a precision therapy for that particular cancer that you have, then you can really have a great curative response rate. Hopefully, we get better and better. Uh, again, with cancer is not like one disease. It's over 200 different types of cancers, depending on the cell type. That's another mm-hmm. way that we need to change the dialogue. And I'll talk about curing cancer. We'll talk about getting better at treating specific cancers and hopefully making it manageable chronic diseases. Um, I'm also involved in this life extension longevity movement for like 15 years. I've been big into this anti-aging. and The idea that we actually can get at most human diseases are pretty much an effect of aging. So we're going to have to stop lying to ourselves and and slowly come out of this trance and say, actually, we're going to directly treat aging itself, which is then going to have the effect of fixing cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, all these things are downstream of aging. Again, we're not making the progress that I'd hoped in uh, life extension when I started at age 22, learning about the field. I thought we were around the corner from having, you know, extending life. And then I realized the, the actual hype and just like every other Thing. Um, Dude, you're just wor- you're just worried it's not going to come in time for you, right? Yeah, that's the bittersweet thing about this, unfortunately. But you, know, you have to just sort of say, hey, well, you know, even if I'm not going to personally benefit from it, it's still important for the world to achieve this milestone. And I think it's going to, yeah, my luck is always like this. I'll live to see, you know, right on the cusp of it and be the bitter old <laughs> man that's <laughs> griping at <laughs> it. <laughs> you, could, you could cryo-freeze yourself when it's ready. Yeah, that actually so, is so, a whole thing, cryonics, yes. So this gene stuff, that's what interested me. I, I'm interested in the idea of uh, you can genetically screen embryos. and sure. uh, that That's kind of interesting, although it gets in ethical errors. But I am also interested in the idea that you could, you could potentially eliminate cancers. That is a possibility as well. Well, I mean, it depends, like, maybe we could engineer future embryos to be really resistant to cancers. There are other organisms like the naked mole rat, which seem to be highly resistant to cancer. Elephants, because they're so large, their body size is so large, you would think that they get cancer at a higher rate because they have that many more trillions of cells. Turns out they have a backup copy of this P53 gene, which is sort of like the apoptosis gene that proof checks and kills cancer cells. 
So we could try to put that into future uh, embryos and program you know, ne the next generations to be resistant to these kinds of things. All right. What are the most concerning areas on the ethics side of this? And is there any kind of regulations? Is there any kind of uh, – because that's that's what I guess I would be most concerned about. What, yeah. about, what about that, Brian? Yeah, yeah Brian, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so – from where I'm sitting, the most concerning part from an ethical perspective are all of the people that argue that it should not be someone's individual choice whether to pursue these technologies. This idea that you can deny people from access to these technologies is hugely, hugely unethical. And there are so many people trying to raise the alarm and dictate what you can and cannot do with your own biology that that it's it's appalling. And part of this is because, you know, we have so much confusion in our society because we, we did commit atrocities as a society against people, you know, forced sterilization, coercion, you know, you had government involvement in people's reproductive choices. All of those are really bad things. And, and in my opinion, you know, if the government is not involved in this and, and they shouldn't, then it should be up to people. You know, people should be allowed to choose which technologies to pursue and which ones they think would help themselves or even their future children. Yeah, but it always comes back to that crazy nihilist who uh, who wants to wipe out a bunch of people. Well, I mean, actually, destroying the world is actually really hard. I mean, people, and especially like like people. So, I mean, people are very resilient. They find ways to survive in all sorts of environments and all sorts of situations. It's really amazing. Uh, you know, life finds a way. You know. And, and I mean, if we're really worried about problems of like someone wiping out everyone, then what we should be focused on are things like Mars. <laughs> yeah, let's get to Mars. <laughs> so it's funny. I went to, um, I went to South by Southwest. First time I went to Austin was South by Southwest years ago. And uh, I went as a digital marketeer way before this Bitcoin stuff. And I, um, my favorite session was a NASA one about how we get to Mars. And there was a lot of things they were talking about there that, that basically made it almost impossible right now. Uh, one of the biggest concerns, I think, was the, you all know better than me, the the infrared, is it the infrared or the radiation? Yeah. Like it will vaporize us straight away. So do we need to bioengineer ourselves to be able to cope with that? There is actually a lot of research into radiation-resistant biology. There are all sorts of organisms that thrive in high-radiation environments. And uh, going back to one of the professors Joseph mentioned earlier today, uh, George Church uh, has narrowed down a list of certain uh, enzymes from radiodurons that he has proposed that should be tried in human biology, human cells, perhaps first in a lab and then later, you know, wider deployment. But yeah, I mean, biology has been explored actually as a critical component to, to modify, to be more, um, to make Mars more hospitable, actually. All right. Well, this is fascinating as ever. Really fascinating stuff. What's the what's the most exciting stuff then? We should we should also be looking out for before we close out, Joseph. Well, so I have been thinking about trying to do kind of a biotech for Bitcoiners primer, just to uh, really get the Bitcoin community thinking about biology is technology, and understanding that biotech is sort of this critical. Uh, uh, piece of the the world economy and that we need to bring innovation here into this space just how we have attempted to take on the financial infrastructure which is hideously dysfunctional so as you are seeing the consequences of a dysfunctional biomedical innovation system is this worldwide 
pandemic shutdown. We've been unprepared, caught flat-footed. No good excuse for that. It has to do with the fact that the last 40 years we've become complacent and allowed certain monopolies to kind of form around these things. For, I mean, everything for basic supply chain stuff of masks and gloves. Um, but it's even worse. The, the biotech tool chain is horribly inefficient. You have machines that are cost 10 times what they should actually cost. The reagents, the chemistry is excessively expensive because it's kind of like a razor blades model where they'll sell you the, the overpriced instrument and then they sell you each you know time you've got to run a reaction, you got to go back and then use their proprietary reagents. So there's this tremendous sort of call for innovation that, that we need to answer uh, in order to speed up our basically time to solutions so that we can develop treatments for these diseases and really address the massive human suffering that's on the planet. There is no other technology like that other than Bitcoin, you know, which is this foundational sort of layer. So I think in like in terms of the civilizational stack, you know, you've got your your Bitcoin for finance and you've got your manufacturing base, which we can switch from the chemical you know, industry substrate to this greener, cleaner, faster, distributed biological manufacturing. Um, so that's kind of, for me, I've been trying to start to reach out and get that message out to the community. And, it, and they're also talking about the kind of philosophical alignments between life extension and, and Bitcoin having that long time preference. If it, it really changes your, your thinking on this and the idea that you may li live several hundred years, that shifts people's behavior profoundly. So that's kind of been what I've been attempting to start doing is making these overtures and get the people to sort of cross over because that's where you get their, the amazing innovation. Bitcoin itself is cryptography, economics, physics, all those things combined. We need to get more of the, you know, the, the tech people and the other engineering people thinking about these hard biology problems and then go forward together. Amazing. All right. Well, this, is, this has been really cool. Anything you wanted to add before we close out, Brian? Yeah, I guess one of the most exciting areas, you know, beyond just Bitcoin removing the incentives for malinvestment in biotech and all other areas of life, I, I would also say that I'm particularly interested in in the possibilities of genetic engineering. I think that's um, something really to look forward to. And uh, just uh, the proliferation of choice, whether through medical tourism and jurisdictional arbitrage, just like it was with Bitcoin originally, you know, go to a jurisdiction that's more Bitcoin friendly. Uh, I think that's where we're going to see a lot of the innovation, really. So many cool things convergent at the same time at a very weird time in life where I think we're starting to see that kind of rejection of centralization and government. And um, but, but perhaps we might get Kanye as a, as a president, though, <laughs> first. But all right, listen, that, that was great. That's really cool. I think people are going to really enjoy this. Um, if people want to find out more, where can they go? Just start with you, Joseph, and then, then you, Brian, if people want to find out more stuff. Uh, yeah, so they can go. So my uh, lab is Biotech and Beyond. That's my space in San Diego where we kind of host early stage life science companies and entrepreneurs. Um, again, part of this movement to create lower cost infrastructure and resources for people to come start a company just like you're able to start a company with the laptop now. We want to make that happen for life sciences. Uh, so that's me, Biotech and Beyond. Uh, Dot com and then i have the podcast these days too also called biotech and beyond awesome cool anything on your side brian yeah i mean to follow me it's twitter.com slash k-a-n-z-u-r-e 
All right, guys. Well, look, great show. Really enjoyed this. I think I'm going to be covering a bit more in the future. Uh, some crazy stuff going on there, but I appreciate both of you coming on. And pretty cool that there's this kind of alignment between the bio guys and the Bitcoin guys. I, I quite like that. So, uh, yeah, thanks, guys. Take care and have a great rest of your weekend. This show was produced by Tom Patterson and Danny Knowles. Our website is defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest exchange for buying Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, where you can download the app from the Apple and Google app stores. If you'd like to support our work, please share the show out with your friends and family on social media, subscribe to Defiance on your favorite platform, and leave us a review on iTunes. My name is Peter McCormack. You can check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, at whatbitcoindid.com, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Defiance.